Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB via the internet 24 hours a day. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful, good afternoon, peace be upon you and welcome to another episode of the Draft Time Show here on The Voice of Islam today with myself, Reza and brother Imran. Over the next two hours, we will be with you speaking about two topics as usual. In the first half of the program, we're going to speak about retail crime. It's a subject that has seen a very disturbing rise in recent years. According to the British Retail Consortium, Shop thefts have more than doubled over the past three years, with a staggering 8 million incidents reported in 2022 alone. And, of course, it's not just the larger stores that are being affected. Smaller retailers are also facing increased thefts, as reported by the Association of Convenience Stores. And then, in the second half of the program, we're going to speak about... Um, alcohol, actually no alcohol, staying sober, living better. And as always, you can have your say on both of these topics throughout the program. You can give us a call on 0208687-7878 or you can send us a tweet at Voice of Islam UK. Don't forget, we usually throughout the program, well, actually every program of the draft, I'm sure here on the Voice of Islam, we ask you a question on Instagram. Um, So do make sure that you do check it out and uh, leave us a comment. In today's uh, question, or today's question is, the alcohol-specific death rates were highest amongst which age group? So you got four options, 18 to 35, 25 to 35, 35 to 45, and the next bracket is 55 to 64. If you know the answer, if you would like to elaborate on your answer, by all means, go to Voice of Islam UK on our Instagram story, and leave us a comment. So I think these two topics are very current topic, um, uh, especially you know in the, the um, when we are going through um, uh, the you know uh, poverty, and especially mm. I think because of uh, this is this is the main reason I think of uh, rising retail crime. So actually, um, let's uh, develop what is retail crime is so before we can understand the you know understand the um uptake in retail crime it's crucial to define what is actually retail 
a crime is. So retail crime refers to unlawful activities that targets retail businesses, encompassing a range of offenses from shoplifting and fraud to more severe crime like armed robbery. Now, often perceived as a, a victimless crime, the repercussions of retail crime are in reality far-reaching. It plays it places a financial burden on businesses, leads to increased customer prices, and can significantly impact local communities and economies. Now, the shop, uh, the scope of retail crime has broadened with the advent of online retail, adding complexities like cyber crime and digital fraud to the existing challenging, uh, f- you know, uh, faced by the retail industry. But uh, today, we'll focus primarily on shoplifting and why it occurs so there's many factors of course we can go through that but throughout the program we will have uh, some of our guests explain and elaborate more on the reasons why and what is it that we can do but as you know brother Ron, you mentioned in the beginning we are going through a cost of living crisis mm-hmm. so the economic factor is one of the main driving forces okay. behind the rise in retail crime um, economic hardship. Again, some people may be able to budget uh, throughout the month in a way that they, you know, barely go through the month and don't have to resort to uh, retail crime or don't have to resort to stealing. In times of economic downturn, petty crimes like shoplifting often do see a spike. I mean, it's a very, unfortunately, a very common thing. Although this doesn't justify the act in no way form shape whatsoever it is however essential to understand some of the root causes as far as the holy quran is concerned it states in chapter 2 verse 189 and do not devour your wealth among yourselves through falsehood and offer it not as bribe to the authorities that you may knowingly devour a part of the wealth of other people with injustice um, we will come back to this. We will speak about what Islam has to say because I think a mm-hmm. very common misconception among the people who are not familiar maybe with Islamic law, who are not familiar with Islamic teachings. I'm sure you've come across this as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, it's stealing. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't that mean that your hands needs to be chopped off? Yeah, this is I think a general public <coughs> you know, opinion regarding Islamic yeah. law and Sharia. Uh, but I think we'll, dis- we'll be discussing sure. in, in a program later that uh, how this rule is applied and uh, does it apply on general public mm-hmm. and uh, how it is, you know, how can one, uh, you know, uh, understand, understand yeah. the, what is the wisdom behind it. Now, secondly, on that list of uh, the, the, the different factors that we, um, you know, would like to mention before we go to our first guest for today, um, you have the social factors. Now, alienation and social disintegration also contribute to criminal behavior. The lack of community support, something that we've spoken about mm-hmm. here on the Draft Time Show many, many times, and opportunities, unfortunately, unfortunately, can push individuals towards a life of crime. Just, I think, last week on the Friday show, uh, Brother Hanif Khan, mm-hmm. who's been a counselor for many, many years, I mean, he sees these things on a daily basis. Mm-hmm how young individuals are pushed into this vicious cycle, vicious circle of uh, criminal activities. So it starts off with a small petty thing. I mean, they have to deliver some money or some cash or some goods. And then, unfortunately, things happen and then they're Mm. stuck in that life of of crime. 
Now, retailers argue that the apparent lack of focus and attention from the law enforcement enforcement is another key contributor. There's a prevailing sentiment that police are stretched thin, and as a result, low-level crimes like shoplifting don't receive the attention they deserve. And I'm sure many of our listeners would agree it's not just retail crime that is currently unfortunately not receiving the attention that they deserve now with us online we have our first guest for today he's the ceo of the neighborhood watch network john hayward uh, cripps john has significant experience in the charity sector having worked for victim support for nine years in various roles including um, being an interim ceo and was a children's team manager at the children's country holiday fund john good afternoon peace upon you and welcome to the draft time show good afternoon thank you Thank you very much for joining us today. <clears throat> Can you um, maybe, uh, to start off with, provide an overview of the mission and the objectives of Neighborhood Watch in our community? I mean, I know in, in different parts of the country, in every city, pretty much we do have something like the Neighborhood Watch established. What, what exactly do you do? What, what's, the, what's the mission? How did that come about? Sure. So we as an organisation in the UK are about 40 years old. It was our 40th birthday last year. And basically, Neighbourhood Watch is a a very, very locally based community Mm organisation. So um, that could either be a a block of flats or a group of neighbours who kind of come together and help each other out. Now, that's always had a focus on crime, um, but it's also about other things. So particularly during covid and at other times that we're very much wanting to make sure that our vulnerable members of the community or lonely members of the community have some contact, mm. um, as well as letting each other know if there are any particular risks or crimes happening in an area. I mean, we have something like 2.3 million households across England and Wales and about 60,000 active volunteers um, in our kind of, in our movement. But certainly what we want to do is to make sure that anyone Um, can access advice and information and support that they need to reduce their likelihood of being a victim of crime. Mm. Also that people who are new to an area or want to get involved in their community can contact Neighbourhood Watch and maybe Neighbourhood Watch isn't the right place for them but they can volunteer in another Mm. or take part in another community kind of linked up to communities but also making sure that we add to a community's health and well-being as well would be our overarching aims. Now, John, something that I personally wanted to know, um, you know, before we get to today's topic, what, what, what are your authorities? We we are we are purely our. I mean, we have close links with the police, but we are we are not the police, mm. and we are we are an independent charity, and our, our authority is purely um, neighbours and. and neighbours and friends getting together to, to look out for each other. We have no statutory authority. Um, but I say we have, as I say, we have close links with the mm. police usually and can, can help report crime um, or let neighbour let neighbours know if there are particular things that they should be concerned about about crime. Mm-hmm. But we have no authority. Sure. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So, so John, how has the you know shoplifting epidemic impacted local communities, especially, and what trends have you observed? I think what you were saying um, just before I came on in terms of, you know, we know that the police are very, very stretched and therefore what are often considered low-level crimes don't get the attention of the police that both the police would like to do, but also that we would assume and expect the police um, to do. So I think that's that's what we're observing. And I think as a result, there's been an increase in 
shoplifting, so which is obviously a huge impact on businesses. But also, it has an impact on our confidence in the police. I think I've, we've certainly heard from businesses that we that we work with that often they don't report shoplifting because mm. nothing will happen, yeah. and therefore you know, their their confidence uh, in the police goes down. You know, which again is it has a has a corrosive effect because then we start to think, well, the police aren't going to do something. And as I say, I would really want to say it's not that the police don't want to do that. They have. You know, they have limited resources and they have to use them as best they can. But that, I think that's the impact of that. John, what's what's the role of um, understanding and compassion in all of this? Um, let me explain where I'm coming from. I do understand that there is always two types of, of groups or two types of people who resort to, to, to this kind of avenues. You have, yeah, forgive me for saying this, but you have the habitual ones sure the ones that do this as a <laughs> as a profession as a living but then you also have those as we mentioned you have the economic factors you have the social factors um that are kind of pushed into this that are that i mean there's always a choice i i get that i i completely understand that but for some people it's not that obvious so when 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 someone is pushed into this out of their personal circumstances they have to feed a family they have you know uh loved ones to take care of uh, and, and it is their first time maybe even is there is there compassion is there understanding for people like that and if so what help is available i mean do you do you just let them off the hook or is there some guidance for them that look you know we understand it's 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 tough for everyone but maybe look into this I, I think there always needs to be compassion because I think we don't want to be, we don't want to make a situation, a, a difficult situation worse. Sure. As you say, it's it's hard sometimes to tell the difference between habitual and kind of one-off, but, but I think within, uh, I would always for myself and our organisation come back to communities. So where there is a, you know, there, there may be someone um, who has in really dire straits financially or for whatever reasons. And I think when, if they're, if there is an active community, whatever that is, whether that's a faith group, whether that's a residence association, whether it's Neighbourhood Watch, it doesn't really matter. But so long as that group can point people towards support that they can get and that there is some support available, you know, whether that's food banks or you know, certainly some of our groups run food banks and there are, there are lots of food banks all over mm. the UK, which is a, in itself is, a, is somewhat of a tragedy, but it, pointing people towards those and... You know, and yes, being compassionate is is obviously really is really really important. Mm-hmm. Um, so, John, what advice do you have for individuals and businesses on how to be, you know, more vigilant and, uh, you know, protect themselves from shoplifting? Sure. I mean, we just from from a purely neighbourhood watch perspective, and we have um, a community safety charter, which is for businesses and organisations to sign up to, and we will provide help and support. Um, to those businesses around how they can, can particularly reduce things like harassment and antisocial and hate crime, um, but also around um, shoplifting. And I would say often if there are um, a set of, and I know this happens uh, in lots and lots of places already, but making sure that your you know, businesses are connected or shops are connected to their neighbourhood shops. Um, so if there is a, a prolific offender or someone that they need to look out for that they can share that information whether that's through whatsapp groups or something like that mm. and i know from some of the um, organizations we work with i mean we we see this more and more that expensive items or 
items that are more likely to be shoplifted, um, such as alcohol, are, are kind of kept behind counters. I mean, those are those are all small things that people can do, and they're not they're not foolproof at all. Um, you know, obviously CCTV can have a role to play as well, but that's that can be expensive. So I think it is a it's you know, it is about being being vig- <coughs> excuse me it is about being vigilant hmm. um, and grouping together with other um, businesses. I think is, is as much as can be done. I mean, we would always advocate that if sh- when shoplifting takes place to report it, even if there's even if there isn't anything that will necessarily be done or the police won't visit, but but the police can only allocate resources when they know about the issues. And so if in a particular row of shops, let's say, there was there was prolific um, shoplifting, if the police are aware of that and all the shops are reporting it, then the police are much more likely to use mm. some resor- some of their resources to make sure there's a visible presence or those kind of things. But it's that can be hard, you know, when the police may not be able to visit yeah, I mean, I, I get that because uh, personally speaking, some of my, one of my friends or you know people that I know, not just one, but I, I think there's 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 a couple of them unfortunately who had their cars stolen, for example, mm. and they called the police, and 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 the only thing that they get to hear is here's your reference number, and good luck with yeah. the insurance. I mean, <laughs> these are cars. We're talking about you know a, a very very. Um, you know, substantial amount sometimes that that gets sure. stolen mm. away, and uh, if you hear that once or twice, th- the chances of you calling the next time are quite low. And I, I understand where you come from. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I think it's. Um, I think those things are are really difficult, and, yeah. it, and it, it 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 just feels like hard work and the kind of oh, what's what's the point yeah. um but i think there is there is a point to do it um even though it is a it can be a pain and you know you may feel not feel great about it afterwards because the police aren't necessarily going to visit mm. as again i know i mean i know from police colleagues it's not that they don't want to it's just limited resources sure. but again if there's a if there's a particular issue with cars um being stolen in a particular area then you know, either the community or the police can make sure that people are taking extra precautions in an yeah. area if that's a particularly targeted area. I mean, it's all, none of it's great, but I think that's as much as we can do and as sure. a community kind of look out for each other. Mm-hmm. So, John, um, you know, uh, recently I was watching um, one of, um, you know, video and in which, you know, uh, there was a shoplifter and uh, he was just, you know, uh, taking everything, clothes and, you know, everything. And the security guards were, was not doing anything. So I think there is an element of fearlessness as well in the people that, you know, nothing going yeah. to happen. And uh, now whatever we can do, we can, you know, whatever we want to do, we can do it. So uh, can you explain that, you know, how can we deal with this, uh, you know, point of fearlessness? Okay, I think that's that's really difficult. You know, I know, um, I know talking to um, colleagues, in, who run retail um, businesses about wanting to make sure that their staff are safe and not put at risk. Hence, mm. saying don't, you know, approach shoplifters because you may um, you may get hurt. Yeah. And yeah. that does the obviously the flip side of that is that it does, as you say, create a a, fierce, a fearlessness or a, mm. or a you know a, a, a truthful view, mm. which is well, I'm unlikely to be stopped, so I'll keep on doing it. Um, and I think that that's that's really difficult. And then I think for those individuals. I mean, certainly CCTV, letting the police know if they, you know, and sharing that information with with other shops and businesses locally. Um, but it's that's not a 
that will take time it's mm. not a, it's not a quick fix at all and that, and mm. as i say during that while that's happening you know your our confidence in the police is is being eroded because it's they mm. are not responding to those things it's, yeah. i think it's really really a, a profoundly difficult thing to manage at the moment mm. lastly there john i mean you uh, spoke about this just very briefly in the beginning how can individuals and families do get involved with the neighborhood watch to you know, maybe play their part to contribute to a safer neighborhood. Uh, and, and also on the question that, you know, Brother Ron asked just before that, me as a bystander, um, what, what are my responsibilities? I mean, what is it that I can do if I see something happening? I mean, if I go to my local shop, if I go to my corner shop that I go to all the time, I know the owner, I know the clientele, what do I do? Okay, in answer to the first, the first thing, certainly to, to become involved in Neighbourhood Watch, the, <clears throat> the easiest route is through our website, which is um, www.ourwatch, so ourwatch.org.uk, and there's lots of information about how to join and um, keep safe. Mm. On, the, on the second point, in terms of the bystander, I mean, I think it's important to, that we all keep safe um when we see but i i mean i i would advocate you know if you've witnessed something of of informing a shopkeeper um if it's in a shop or a security shop if if, you know if you do observe that that someone you know is shoplifting and then let them deal with it or be aware of it um on a on a slightly different point in terms of the bystander i think particularly where and this is something that maybe watch is very keen on where where we witness um, either harassment or someone being um, verbally abused or it's a sort of, um, yeah, those sort of antisocial behaviour and harassment that we often see quite regularly and aren't sure what to do. And I would say, you know, certainly our research and we would really advocate that when safe to do so, asking the person who's been a victim of that sort of harassment, just checking with that person if they're mm. okay, when it's safe to do so can be really, really helpful to people feeling like, oh, I don't just have to take that yeah, type yeah. of harassment or abuse. I think that's some, a small thing that we can all do and and help. Wonderful. CEO of the Neighbourhood Watch Network, John Hayward Cripps, with us on the line. John, thank you very much for your time. Great to have you on. And uh, you. have a great day. Uh, take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. I think in all of this, uh, unfortunately, if you are from London, you see the news mm. on a daily basis. I mean, uh, I'm not sure if you have the app. It's called Next Door. Okay, yeah. So that tells you what is happening in your neighborhood. If there, you know, incidences like that on mm-hmm. the high street, theft and robberies and and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's the messages are going crazy. I'm telling you, uh, two years ago, I think I downloaded that app just to, you know, during lockdown to to make sure that we, from the mosque side, that we help the community. So okay. we offered our support, we offered our help, anything that we could do. So I just left the app. Um, it was still on my phone, but if <laughs> if I check now, it's like every single day there's something happening. Uh. I mean, um, one of my cousin, he's a manager in um, some of the, you know, uh, shop. So, and he, he, every time, you know, mostly it's uh, happened three times, four times in a month mm. that uh, he comes 
and you know he's looking very upset so i asked him what happened so he said that you know uh, these shop lifters they're they're so you know uh, fearless yeah. that they just grab everything and they just and walk in front of you and they right in the eyes <laughs> like, i'm taking this now yeah. there's nothing you can do and about it and unfortunately you know uh, he was telling me that you know moms they they bring the small children with them yeah. and they just tell them to pick this this thing and you cannot even touch them because yeah. you know yeah. Uh, so, yeah so there's a risk involved of you know so unfortunately they're teaching their children as well yeah. to just taking everything and so these are That's the you tragic. know tragic things but previously i think you were t- talking about the uh, you know contributing um factors sure. i think one of the is technology as well so oddly enough the advancement of uh, technology uh, while mostly you know positive has also facilitated easier way uh, for people to engage in retail crime uh, for example you know um, clone credit cards and quantified money and hacking are increasingly becoming a part of the retail crime landscape now this crisis is not just about the theft of goods but also a theft of security and peace of mind for both consumers and retailers alike in islam so we're previously talking about the point sure. of view of islam regarding this so in islam theft is a grave offense uh, punished severely um, to deter others now as mentioned in the holy quran Allah the Almighty says uh, in chapter 5 verse 38 that as for as for and as for the man who steals and the woman who steals cut off their hands in retribution of their offense as an exemplary punishment from Allah and Allah is mighty wise now this punishment prescribed for uh, theft in this verse may appear to be too severe in the sight of those who are you know swayed by false sentiments but the experience of world shows that punishment if it is to be deterrent should be severe and exemplary now it is better to be uh, you know uh, serve to one and save a thousand than to be indulgent to all and ruin many but as is the beauty of the holy quran now again we need to put this into context mm-hmm. right so yeah. what this verse refers to and you have to put it into a society where you are in an islamic state mm-hmm. a state which is run on the principles given by god almighty in the holy quran mm-hmm. um and the teachings of the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him but as is the case with with many of the verses as explained in the holy quran itself mm-hmm. that some verses are very clear cut but some of them they need interpretation Absolutely. according to the time according to the need um and according to the the the, the situation mm-hmm. one of the things one of the commentaries that we find of this uh, verse in specific of chapter 5 verse 38 mm-hmm. now cutting off your hands doesn't necessarily mean physical punishment so okay. physically cutting off your hands okay if you stop the means if you stop someone in their tracks mm mm-hmm. that is also cutting, cutting off, off their hands so okay. for example if you if you uh, rely on let's say certain gadgets and technologies you take away that mechanism for them to to go about and do their you know theft or their business if you cut off those alleys those 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 ways which they utilize to do their mm, theft mm. then that is also one of the meanings right okay okay or for example um if uh, you 
um, know that somebody is a habitual mm. thief. Professional, I mean professional. professional. Mm. You've reprimanded them two times, three times, four mm. times, five times. I mean, depending on the situation again. Mm. Then, again, in the context of you having a state that regulates this, not the individual, mm. not any cleric, not any family or clan or whatever. No, as a state, then that is something that you can also apply. Mm-hmm. So everything needs to be put into context. Yeah. Again, if you listen to it for the first time, might be a very mm-hmm. difficult to uh, yeah. difficult thing to understand. I just remember one of the incident of the Promised Messiah, Um So uh, there was one specific incident when uh, a woman yeah. she tried yeah, yeah, to yeah. steal her rice, and uh, she got caught. And uh, you know everyone was um, holding her. So the Promised Messiah, Islam, inquired what happened, mm. and someone asked that you know someone said that uh, you know uh, she got stealing. Uh, she, uh, we caught him. She was stealing a rice. Mm. So the Promised Messiah, Islam, he was, you know, about to cry, and she said, he said that uh, you know, give her some rice mm. and just leave her. So any, I mean, in this sort of situation, cost of you know, living crisis, this sort of situation, and then you have to. I think you mentioned a very good point that you have to, you know, uh, judge the situation as well, yeah. and this cannot be applied on every, you know, theft. Sometimes compassion goes. A lot further than punishment. Absolutely. And that's the reason yeah. why I asked John that question. Our next guest for today is the Director of External Affairs and Partnership at Catch22, which is a charity and social business working with individuals and communities across a range of areas, including justice, education, employability, and skills, um, and with young people and families. Uh, joining us now is Melissa Milner. Melissa, good afternoon. Peace upon you, and welcome to the Draft Time Show. Hello, thanks so much for having me. Thank you very much for joining us today. Um, Catch-22, uh, let me ask you if you can you know, briefly give us uh, an overview of your mission and the specific areas of support and services that you offer um, to young people and families, as I mentioned. Absolutely, yeah. Well, your description has actually been very good, but I'll delve <laughs> into it a little bit more. So, yeah, we're, we're a family large charity and we deliver around 120 different services and, and programmes across the country. And like you said, that covers many areas, including uh, justice, so victims of crime and ex-offenders. We work in education. We, we help um, young people get the right skills to go into sustainable jobs. And we do a lot of work with young people and families. And, and that really includes things like um, drug and substance misuse support, helping uh, victims of child criminal and sexual exploitation, um, including county lines activity, and also um, mental health and, and wellbeing support. And we're really driven by this mission of, um, well, the idea really that in order to, to thrive, people need what we call the three Ps. So um, good people around them, um, a safe place to be uh, and live, um, and a purpose in life. So that, that's what really drives us as a charity. Mm, that's pretty good. Um, now, speaking about the topic at hand, if I can ask you, do you have any, you know, maybe you could share with our listeners some examples of how what we spoke about in the beginning, the, lo- the, the cost of living crisis, how has that marginalized and maybe pushed some young individuals towards these criminal activities such as uh, shoplifting? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the first point I'd make on this is that, you know, when there are pressures on society as a whole, so as you say, the cost of living crisis is an example, those who are already facing disadvantage for whatever reason, they're going to feel that pressure even more. Hmm. That's the first thing to say. And, and if I can give you an example of a specific kind of cohort of young people we work with um, at Catch-22, so these are care-experienced um, young people, so, you know, young people who've been in the care system. Now, towards the end of last year, so kind of high to cost of living crisis, we, we surveyed over 450 young people with mm-hmm. experience of the care system. 
and we asked them about the impact of the cost of, of living crisis on, on them. Um, and some really kind of quite startling facts, I would say. So over 80% said they were struggling to afford food um, all or some of the time. Um, three quarters um, said that the crisis had an impact on their mental health. And interestingly, for, for your specific question around kind of turning to criminality, um, 14% said they'd put themselves in a vulnerable, vulnerable position, such as shoplifting, to okay. afford essentials. So, you know, that's just one snapshot of a group. But clearly this is, you know, exacerbating existing um, vulnerabilities. And I think, you know, more widely we've noticed that some young people who are struggling financially or perhaps whose family, you know, are, are struggling financially mm. and are being um, e- exploited by by people who are kind of see that vulnerability and kind of prey on it so I'm, I'm talking here about kind of online predators if you like who are recruiting young people by offering money or other gifts in exchange for you know trafficking drugs or whatever um because you know they know that that, that these young people are feeling the pressure to, to bring in um money in some shape or form so i think you know yes uh, the, the, the shoplifting is an issue but actually you know it's it's a wider issue sure. around you know, preying on that vulnerability now, one thing, um, when we speak about resources, when we speak about, you know, places where these young people can go to maybe avoid this vicious cycle and, and, and slowly, slowly drifting into it, it's it's a very difficult thing to ask and, and, and to see that whereas, you know, a decade ago you had places where these young children and young young individuals could go to, let's say, a community oh. hub or a library or a sports center or you know just just a football ground uh, in yeah. their neighborhood. All of this is disappearing. So, in in your case, what resources, what guidance do you offer to help young people make positive choices and not drift into this uh, vicious circle of, of of criminal activities? And also keeping in mind that when they turn on their phones, when they go onto social media, all you see nowadays is, uh, oh, yeah, this is how you make a quick buck. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, I invested in this, and a month later, I had five figures on my bank account. Absolutely. This, this, yeah. this, how, how do you gauge what reality is and how much of that can you accomplish or not? I mean, for, for us as adults, yeah, if it's too good to be true, it probably isn't. But for for a young person, that's that's all that oh, the whole that bling bling that attraction of that quick money, the quick car, the big house, that's that's you know looming over their heads all the time. You're yeah, you're you're absolutely spot on, and I I think so. So part of the answer to that I think is is education. You know, so it's it's um, making young people aware of of what's out there um, and 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 being um, kind of savvy, if you like, hmm. to, to that. Um, but it goes back to my point about the three P's, I think. You know, if you can help people have a good support network, have good role models, have people that they can talk to, um, then actually when some of this uh, sort of temptation, if you like, comes in, then there's the opportunity to actually sense check that with people and, and get a kind of um, steer. So I think, you know, having having those, those people around them. And, and at Catch-22, that's what we try and do. You know, we, we're not statutory services. We are a, a charity. We, we try to go to where young people are. So you mentioned sports centres and youth clubs, you know, sadly many of these things sort of dropping away. Mm. But, but you know, we try and go to the where the young people are and say, look, you know, this, this is what we can offer. We can provide, you know, trusted adults that you can confide in and, and that kind of thing. So I think a good network's important. Um, and, and actually, you know, I think what you're describing in some ways is, is what we would call kind of diversionary activities. So actually, what's the alternative um, that, that these young people can be doing as opposed to 
potentially some of this criminal behaviour. So some of the programmes we run at quite a local level are, are about, you know, sports programmes as diversionary activity, uh, music programmes, creativity, um, what we call kind of pre-employability programmes. So actually saying to, you know, young people, actually this is the skill set you need to get a really kind of, you know, decent step on the on the career ladder mm. um, and helping them do that, you know, because many young people don't have that kind of social capital, those networks to actually get them into that first job. So giving them a kind of, yeah, sense of aspiration and enthusiasm about particular kind of careers. Um, and just pointing out that actually, you know, uh, the alternatives, so some of these, as you say, kind of make a quick buck by doing this or whatever, it's just not worth it mm-hmm. in the long term. And actually, there's another, you know, there's an alternative um, route. So it's, a, you know, it's a, it's a tricky one. But I, I think a combination of, you know, um, education, making young people aware, having the support sort of there to to, to, ha- to help them and recognise that it's it's challenging, and then offering an alternative is is really key to what it, what we try to do anyway. If 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 I may ask, you know, Melissa, when you mentioned these role models, so yeah. in in your charity, what what kind of um people are we looking at are, are are these people that who have gone through this experience who have come out and they can you know have personal examples a relationship that look I've been down that road you don't want to go down that road as a psychologist w- what are we looking at because the reason why I'm asking this is that a lot of people want to help um mm. they 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 have the experience they have that charisma they have mm. you know all of this if they want to get involved is that possible for them yeah absolutely so uh firstly you know many of our practitioners uh, at catch 22 do have lived experience in the you know various fields that i described and mm. i think that's that's important because you have that kind of empathy yeah. with the, the people that you're working with i would also say you know i mean i talked about kind of online harms and online predators and things but actually you know there's a lot of good that goes on online there are a lot of content creators who are you know have millions of followers sure. who are inspiring to young people and where we can we try and engage those kind of people in some of our programs um to to inspire and enthuse and actually show you know what the alternative are the alternatives are and yeah you know if there are people out there who are thinking gosh i'd really like to support this absolutely you know um we 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 try to to build in that to to the different programs that that we run because as i said i think it's that it's that understanding of of just the, the pressures quite frankly that are on young people and that's so important if we're if we're going to help them through this um, difficult time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so one of the main uh, causes of, of you know shoplifting is uh, cost of living crisis. So, in what way does Catch Twenty Two provide emotional and physical support to young people who may be struggling due to the cost of living crisis? Yeah, so I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, one is quite a local example. Um, we have a, a drop-in centre in Camden called the Hive, um, and this you, you go in and it feels like a youth club essentially it's got you know sort of sports you can play and you know um computers and all the rest of it but also it has clinical mental health support and a sexual health advice clinic and and that kind of um medical you know professional intervention as well so we we, we've created there a kind of i think a really alternative model to how you can sort of help um with the emotional and psychological support as you say that that, that young people might need and actually a lot of that ends up being sort of peer-to-peer support because the young people who come into that that space um get get that sort of support from each other as well as the professionals so that's just sort of one example but also i just go back to some of the kind of really practical things we try to do on our employability program so again you know, sort of helping young people mm-hmm. um, 
to, 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 to forge a career, to get those skills so what we know are jobs of the future, so whether that's, you know, green jobs or creative industries or, you know, uh, digital and tech. Um, and, and people who may not have sort of thought of that as a career path, but actually say, no, it is possible, you know, come and learn these basic skills with us, come and hear from people who work in these industries who can be those kind of role models, and we'll help work with, you know, help find employers that are, that are keen to take you on. So, you know, and, and we know how important um, being in a job can be to your kind of, you know, emotional and, and psychological mm-hmm. state as well. So it's, it's trying to, you know, go back to that point about purpose and giving giving young people that kind of drive and optimism, um, really, in, in, in what's, you know, very difficult kind of circumstances. And I think I would just also say, finally, that, you know, because our staff aren't from statutory services, I think I think young people do tend to sort of open up a bit more mm-hmm. and, and talk to us and actually, you know, um, sort of, yeah, talk about the challenges that they're facing. And, and it, it's, you know, it's time consuming. Our staff invest a lot of time in these young people, but but it helps to navigate the right path for them rather right. than being a kind of, um, you know, sausage machine mm-hmm. type service, if you like. Mm-hmm. So, Melissa, looking ahead, now, how can the government and local authorities assist organizations such as Catch-22, which try to help tackle the challenges faced by marginalized youth? Yeah, great question. Um, well, I mean, we're, we're in the midst of the Labour Party conference, aren't we, <laughs> and, and party conference season, and, and I would say there's certainly a, a kind of window of opportunity opening uh, for all of us working in the kind of influencing space on, on this. And, you know, we know next year at some point there'll be a general election um, we're going to have mayoral elections in May. So, you know, it's, it, there is a window of opportunity. And I, I think we want to make the case for, for more attention um, and more resources to be directed at, at young people. Um, and so, you know, uh, a, lot of, a lot of focus is put on early years, kind of rightly so, because it's important young people get a good start in life. Um, but actually, this sort of adolescent age is, is, is often neglected in policy terms. Um, so a few things that we're sort of calling for as an organisation, um, which I know many others are as well, but, you know, we, we talked a bit about online harms. That has to be a priority. You know, we've got the online safety bill that's, that's becoming law very soon. That needs to be enacted properly. Um, you mentioned about sort of some of the, um, you know, local community centres and things not, not being as vibrant as they once were. And so very much we think there should be um, more investment in youth workers in communities um, because of the sort of pivotal role they play in supporting young people, you know, before some of these issues start to arise, really. Um, we also think there needs to be more done to tackle child criminal exploitation. You know, we don't have in this country a national strategy to tackle child criminal exploitation, which in itself kind of speaks volumes. Mm. And we know county lines activity is, is ever increasing. So that needs to be done. Um, and, you know, the final thing I'd say that, you know, for, for, for teachers and those working in education, we need to be supporting them to really spot some of these signs of, um, you know, potential criminal activity, whether it's gang affiliation or serious youth violence or knife crime, which, you know, we know is a huge issue, and actually making sure we're su- supporting education staff to uh, point young people in the direct, right direction and, and intervene early before before it becomes, um, you know, a criminal activity that we've been talking about. So, Absolutely. yeah, lo- lots of things on a policy level, I, I would say. No doubt. Uh, make sure that you send someone up to Liverpool to, to get that message across. <laughs> to- <laughs> thank you very much Melissa for joining us today I mean it's a great work that you're doing out there we wish you all the best Um, and as as you mentioned if if there's anyone who would like to help I think you can reach out to Catch 22 um, and uh, I'm sure there's something that uh, can be accommodated Melissa Milner Director of External Affairs and Partnership at Catch 22 thank you very much for joining us today and peace be with you thank you so much thank you bye bye 
this reminds me of the points that Melissa mentioned. Mm-hmm. It reminds me because it's all it's all related and it's all linked to the next generation to uh, to get that reform to make sure that they have the means available to make sure that they have the resources to have the guidance mm-hmm. the role models mm-hmm. and and a place to go. Of what the second caliph of the promise uh, of of the Ahmadi Muslim community, Hazrat Zabshiruddin Mahmud Ahmed, may Allah be pleased with him, what he mentioned mm-hmm. when creating the youth organization. Yeah. So the 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 motto or you know the the this mission statement of of Majlis Khudam Lahmdiya again. So this is the youth organization from the ages of fifteen to forty. Mm-hmm. He says that you cannot reform a nation until and unless you reform. The youth, Beautiful. it's youth, right? Mm-hmm. And again, when you look at the teachings of Islam, when it comes to what the role of a mother is, mm-hmm. what the role of a family unit is, what the role of a father is in the upbringing of your family, in the upbringing of your child—not just your own, but also the wider society, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So unless and until we don't have mothers who instill these values, these morals, these ethics on how to be. A good person, not just one who cares about himself or herself and about their family, but also to the wider society. It's 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 looking very bleak, Absolutely. and this is something that Islam has proposed fourteen hundred mm. years ago. Absolutely beautiful. I think Melissa um, also talked about education. Yeah, I think it's uh, you know it's saying says go saying goes like charity begins from home, and I think it's a parents you beautifully explained that you know it's a parents should be mo- role model for their children. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, I mentioned previously that you know uh, some some mothers they just send their children yeah. to just grab ev- everything and just uh, get away with the crime. So I think. Uh, the the importance of uh, education and teaching the more um, teaching of moral trainings of the children is yeah. very important if you teach uh, the children uh, that you know uh, these are the goods and these are the bads mm. then i think it's um, it's much likely that your 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 son or your you know your daughter ending up in this sort of situation so education is very important role model is very important and uh, let's talk about these you know uh, um thefts and uh, shoplifters have impact on prices and communities hmm. so one of the um, you know one of the impact uh, uh, is financial burden as well so the immediate fallout of retail crime is often a financial one businesses are left with the task of replenishing s- stolen inventory which can be particularly taxing for small retailers operating on thin margins Then another uh, another another pact is security cost. So retailers may also invest in elaborate security system to deter future thefts, from CCTV cameras to advanced tagging system and even hiring additional per- security personnel. These uh, preventative measures are cheap. Then there is a um, um, administrative load. So the time spent on reporting mm. thefts. and you know pursuing the law enforcement uh, um, you know and dealing with the insurance claim is another hidden cost this administrative burden pulls employee away from other more you know productive tasks has a knock on effect no doubt mm-hmm. on that our next guest for today is uh, shona guri uh, she shona is uh, the policy and advocacy manager at the food foundation a campaigning organization uh, who works to improve children's diets and influence food policy to inspire change in food businesses and investment something that is probably a very difficult and ongoing process ashana good afternoon peace upon you and welcome to the draft time show 
Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for joining us today. First of all, I do apologize if I pronounce your name incorrectly. Um, Got it absolutely right. Oh, that's perfect. Uh, I like to hear that. <laughs> the Food Foundation. Tell us about the Food Foundation. What are your aims? What are your missions? And why do you specifically focus on um, you know young children and the and, and the younger members of the society to improve you know their diets? Um, so we are a charity and we're all about trying to make it possible so that everyone can afford and access a healthy and sustainable diet. We know that you know often people want to eat well, but it's actually incredibly difficult to, to do that. And because of that, um, diet is actually now the biggest risk factor for developing preventable diseases like obesity, diabetes, heart disease, those sorts of things. We have really high levels of food insecurity level in this country. Um, our food system is also a really big contributor to, to climate change. Mm. So these are really big issues we need to be doing something about to make it possible for people to eat in a way that's going to be good for their health and also good for the planet. Um, we know that it's harder for people on low incomes to eat well as well for lots of reasons that are often outside of their control. So we have a particularly big focus on trying to improve those inequalities. Um, and as you said, we also have a big focus on children because we know that food poverty and not getting enough food in childhood can have lifelong impact for children and good nutrition is just so important for giving children the best start in life and mm. so we do a lot of work around talking to food businesses like supermarkets and campaigning to, to call on government to introduce policies that are going to make um, healthy and sustainable food more affordable and more accessible for everyone and really make sure that eating well is the easiest option. Mm-hmm. Shana, how has you know this food insecurity that you've been talking about how has that been exacerbated by the current cost of living crisis and what impact do you think has it had on those who are already struggling the ones that you mentioned especially children um, you know when when we talk about food banks the numbers are going up when we talk about people uh, struggling to to heat or eat that is going up as well. I mean, the winter is coming. We're probably going to see a spike in that as well. Um, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, food insecurity levels have increased really drastically in the cost of living crisis. And as you say, you know, food banks have had an unprecedented increase in people using them. And even then, we know that that's not reaching everyone who's experiencing yeah. food insecurity. Um, and they're not able to, you know, meet the demand because that's how bad things have gotten. Um, and we sort of do research to monitor levels of food insecurity. And our most recent research on this in, in June found that one in five households with children are food insecure. So it's really high levels that we're seeing. Um, and that's things like, you know, skipping meals, not eating despite being hungry. In some cases, going a whole day without eating. So really sort of severe things that we're seeing. Um, and I think when we look at what's happened with food prices as well, it's really not surprising that we've seen this massive escalation. We've been, you know, tracking the cost of a weekly basket of food, and we found that that's gone up about 25% mm-hmm. since last year. So, you know, that's a huge increase for anyone, but particularly for people on low income, because they can't afford that increase and they just have to, you know, go without food or often buy less healthy food as well, because that tends to be cheaper. So, you know, we really need to see government taking action to do so much more to to deal with this problem that we've seen, you know, double in the last year. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Ashona, 
Are there any specific policy changes or advocacy? Sorry, <coughs> advocacy efforts that the Food um, Foundation is currently involved in to improve um, access to government support for food security. Yes, definitely. So there's seven things that we're advocating for at the moment. Um, one of the big things we're focused on is free school meals and um, in partnership with lots of other charities as well, we're campaigning for, for free school meals to be available to more children. Um, so, you know, that's a government scheme, which means that children on low incomes can get an allowance to buy lunch at school. And for some children, that might be their only hot, nutritious meal of the day. Um, so it's a really important scheme, but the problem is that it doesn't cover all the children who need it. And that, you know, we're still seeing these high levels of food insecurity. And there's a really strict income threshold set by government for free school meals, where you have to be on an extremely low income to, to qualify. And because of that, there's an estimated 900,000 children in England who, despite the fact that they are living in poverty, can't get a free school meal. So... You know, they either have to rely on whatever they can afford to get into, which you know tends to be either less healthy or, you know, not enough food to get them through the day. And mm. we know that children with, you know, empty stomachs, they find it hard to concentrate, their behaviour deteriorates. So not getting a decent meal really affects whether they can reach their, their full potential. So we're really calling um, on government to extend access to preschool meals, at least to all children on universal credit but as you lead to all children so that no child is missing out on that kind of vital nutritional safety net. Mm-hmm. So Chanel, looking ahead, what are the long-term goals of the Food Foundation in addressing food insecurity and ensuring access to nutritious meal for all, especially children? Um, so I think our long-term goal is making sure that we have policies in place, we have a system where healthy food is the normal easy option that everybody can afford we want to make sure that everyone has enough income to be able to buy food and we also need to make sure that healthy food is the most affordable option and the most available and most appealing and just make it easier for people to to eat well and so for example to make sure people have sufficient incomes you know benefit levels minimum wage levels need to be calculated in a way that actually cost to afford a healthy diet because at the moment they're not set based on that level so it's actually not possible for everyone to afford everything they need based on that kind of income level um and we also know these things are hugely supported by the public so about 70 percent support um increasing benefits to public hospital essentials a similar number support expanding free school meals and so you know if we're expecting an election next year these are the things that policymakers really need hmm. to be Committing to doing, they want to get the vote. Uh, so, Shona, what would make your life at the Food Foundation easier? What would help you directly? Um, is it is it is it the is it the supermarkets, their cooperation? Is it the policymakers? Is it the funding? What would it be? I mean, when we talk about universal credit, the benefits, and everything, that's all good and fine. Um, but I mean that's a very very difficult thing to get across even if you stand out there with an army of, of supporters outside the, the Labour Party conference but something that you know would help you yeah and I don't think there's sort of one solution to the problem I think there's lots of different things that we need to see happen so we need government to really recognize the need for them to 
to do more. We need supermarkets to do their part as well to make it hmm. uh, make you know food as affordable for people as they as they possibly can. We need to see employers across the country paying wages that help people afford the food they need. You know, there's a whole spectrum of things across the system that are that are needed to really um, make sure that everyone can can get the food that they need. Um, and yeah, and obviously the public showing their support for these issues uh, really helps as well. Wonderful. Shauna, thank you very much for joining us today. You can find out more about the Food Foundation on their website, foodfoundation.org.uk. Shauna Godi with us on the line. Thank you so much and have a great day. Again, wonderful work that you guys are doing out there. Um, Peace be upon you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good evening. 0208-687-7878 is the number for you to call. Now, there again, as is the case with many of these issues that we do talk about here on the Drive Time Show, and uh, versus Islam in general, it's not just uh, a one-size-fits-all solution mm-hmm. to this. But yeah. as you know, Shauna mentioned, as John also mentioned, as well as Melissa. Mm-hmm. It starts, I mean, there's a certain generation, if you start at that level, yes, all good and fine. But I think what what is happening in the last couple of years, the issues that we see come to the forefront, be it gang violence, be it shoplifting, be Mm. it mental health crisis, the youth and the younger generation, the next generation, the younger individuals in our society are affected by that in in a way that I don't think any other previous generation has ever been. So we need to focus on that. All the energy, the funding, and whatever it takes needs to be invested into that next generation because at the end of the day, this is the future. That's the generation that will be running this country, will be part of this society, will be forming and shaping this society. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if we don't have um, this this basis covered where you have strong, morally strong, ethically strong uh, individuals, then it looks very, very difficult. We'll be back after the break. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, our merciful. This is Imran Akram, and you're listening to Drive Time Show, Monday's edition. Time is um, 7 past 5, uh, 5 past 7. And you're listening Voice of Islam Radio from Battle Futu Mosque. And you can call us 020. 020- Eight six eight seven seven eight seven and and you can also tweet us by by at Voice of Islam UK. Now in previous hour we were dis- we were discussing about a very important topic of uh, shoplifting and theft and how can we basically tackle this issue and what is the Islamic. Uh, point of view on that topic and we have talked about uh, the previous you know uh, there were three guests in the uh, previous hour and we try to shed the light on this topic and for the, this for this hour for the second hour we're going to talk about no alcohol stay sober live better and you know this is also a very important topic 
uh, especially with regards to uh, the you know younger generation who are you know uh, more and more indulging in this now the consumption of alcohol has become so normalized in today's society that it is often integrated into various social cultural and even professional settings without much thought or question and if you choose not to drink you may sometimes face social pressure or even judgment for your decision however although drinking is the norm the numerous detrimental effect of alcohol have been proven over and over again fortunately islam completely forbids drinking and muslims have been warned about the harms it can causes now in chapter 5 was 91 to 92 of the holy quran allah the almighty states o ye who believe wine and the game of hazard and idols and dividing arrows are only an abomination of satan's handiwork so shun each one of them so that you may prosper satan desires only to create enmity and hate it among you by means of wine and the game of hazard and to keep you back from the remembrance of allah and from prayer but will you keep back now the in these verses it allah the almighty explains that drinking leads to a culture of hatred and enmity which causes violence and immoral behavior leading to the cohesion of relationship so this is the you know introduction of today's topic and the point of view yeah as you absolutely rightly mentioned in the holy quran the verse that we find uh, you know chapter 5 uh, verse 91 and 92 it's it's always very interesting um you know to to speak about this topic um and and also to look into this verse in specific in another verse god almighty states that yes you do have certain um benefits you do have certain things that alcohol might be good for but mm-hmm. the disadvantages outweigh f- you know by far mm-hmm. the advantages of 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 alcohol and i think we've come to a point in in the history of you know science or even mankind where um we we can confidently say mm-hmm. that alcohol is not good absolutely <laughs> and there was always this 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 uh, discussion and and scientific mm-hmm. um explanation or research that oh one glass of red wine every night or every day that's healthy for you it's health digestion in food yeah, and everything. all like you know, whatever the reasons were behind that but mm-hmm. again um the the most recent research that i've come across mm-hmm. is that no alcohol is the best option at all okay. zero so we have uh, our first guest of this segment alan wood um alan is a sobriety and well-being coach helping other women reach their sobriety fitness and nutrition nutrition goals by working on their mindset she works with her client to help them examine their relationship with alcohol and works together to help build a happier healthier life without alcohol welcome alan to the draft room show hi thanks for having me it's nice to be here um so and i we're discussing about you know alcohol and its related problem now can you share some of the key benefits that people can experience when they embark on their sobriety journey and how it positively impact their overall well-being 
Yeah, for sure. Um, in my journey to sobriety, it really was taking a break from alcohol um, that gave me clarity on the benefits, the many, many benefits that you see when giving up alcohol. And that doesn't go for just people who have a destructive relationship with alcohol. It goes for everybody, no matter how much hmm. or how little you drink. As you've just mentioned, there actually is no safe limit of alcohol. It is a poison. It's it's toxic to us. So when we remove it from our lifestyle, we see a huge amount of benefit. Um, for, a, for a start, the amount of time that we free up, most people either spend a huge amount of time planning when they're going to drink, actually drinking, or recovering from drink. Um, the money that we save, the physical health benefits, we lower blood pressure, lower resting heart rate, which lowers our risk of heart disease. Um, it lowers our risk of certain cancers, it improves our skin, and it improves our sleep, which has a knock-on effect to many other things. Our mood stabilizes, um, our energy increases. There are so many benefits. Also, mental health-wise, lots of people believe that they're drinking to um, relieve stress or hmm. anxiety or depression, and actually, it's quite often the alcohol that's causing it and is at the root of it. So when you start to remove alcohol, although it feels quite difficult in the early days, actually, after a few weeks, most people see things like their sleep and their anxiety, their depression um, and stress all start to melt away. Now, Ellen, your approach involves helping clients examine uh, you know, that relationship with alcohol. If I can ask you if you can elaborate on how this process works and how it contributes to, to build a happier, healthier life without alcohol? Is it, um, I'm guessing it starts with the person or the client in that, in that case coming to you, taking that first step? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, the narrative around alcohol is starting to change, which is great. And so when I grew up, there weren't any adult role models in my life, in, in my parents' kind of life, that didn't drink alcohol. Hmm. It's just a rite of passage. So... Many people, especially in the UK in the 90s, um, when I grew up, it was targeted at teenagers and it was just what I thought adults did. Now the narrative has shifted slightly, so there's more of a, a sober culture, especially at the moment, as a trend towards sobriety, which is great. It means that more people are able to start to just kind of start to question whether maybe they could benefit from giving up. Mm -hmm. um, and it means then when they come to me, they're already, I work very much on uh, the psychology of change. And so they come to me, they're, they're already contemplating whether their relationship is, with alcohol is doing them any favors or whether it's no longer serving them. So together I work with the client and we examine their relationship. Like, what does it look like? What did it look like? Are they still seeing the same benefits from drinking? Lots of people really still enjoy it or they believe they do. Um, and that's fine. We look at that. It's a drug. It ha it's an addictive drug. So lots of, of course it has benefits. People enjoy it. Hmm. Um, but we also look at the cons. We look at actually the unintended consequences they're seeing from their alcohol use, which normally can involve like interpersonal problems, um, you know, with their partners, with their colleagues, with their children, with their parents. Uh, there can be many kind of unintended consequences. So together we'll have a look at those. And then I will generally ask if they're prepared to take a break uh, of drinking. Um, and that's where then, when they take a break, they can start to see what the, the difference looks, looks like, what does life look like without it, 
what does it like life look like um with it yeah. and we work on fears and beliefs and behaviors um and really i work on the mindset it, it's going from thinking that we're abstaining from alcohol to stepping into like actually we're not giving up anything we're gaining so much from giving up alcohol now ellen if, if you don't mind me asking sorry um what what age group or demographic are we looking at i mean your your clients is that again what you mentioned before the younger generation has kind of lost that interest uh, in 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 that culture so is it more of the older generation is it you know w- what are we looking at and what are the reasons why they yeah. come to you so most people that i work with are between 35 well 35 actually up to 80 Oh. Um, so yes, I think actually the younger generation now are coming through and realise that sobriety is a choice, mm-hmm. and that is great. There's been a shift. Um, lots of people that I work with have, for instance, children. Something has changed. Hmm. Like they went from social drinking, once you know, at the weekend, once a week, to being at home, and especially during the pandemic, that had a huge impact mm-hmm. on people's drinking. Um, like myself, I moved abroad, I moved to France, and all of a sudden it was like holiday drinking every day. Um, but something generally has shifted where people are drinking at home more so, maybe on their own. Um, not necessarily all day, every day, but just that they they see that there's a ne- negative impact on them, um, on the, how they feel about themselves, on how they're behaving in the world. So they're, they're starting to question it. Mm-hmm. So Ellen... Uh, many people, you know, may be hesi- hesitant to pursue sobriety due to, you know, social pressure, sometimes peer pressure or uh, misconception. What advice do you have for people who are considering sobriety but are unsure about how to navigate these challenges? Yeah, that's a big one. Um, and the stigma can kind of keep us stuck. It can seem that you only need to give up alcohol if you hit a rock bottom, if you're an alcoholic. Um, so actually that's not true but to start off with lots of people don't like to speak about their sobriety mm-hmm. journey um, so really finding your sober community is super important people that understand you that's why I, I have a sober community online mm-hmm. um, where we meet via Zoom obviously there's um, lots and lots of those communities actually now and um, there, there's It's knowing that actually this is your journey. Mm-hmm. So being able to say to people, it's not that I had an issue. Actually, I just see so many benefits from it. It doesn't suit me anymore. I've grown out of it. Um, that took me a long time. There was like almost shame around my sobriety, which mm. is ironic because looking back, there should have been shame around my drinking, not my sobriety. Yeah. Um, and it's mm-hmm. knowing that you're doing what's best for you. And most people who want the best for you will support that. Mm-hmm. I think Ellen you mentioned very important point that you were you know ashamed of quitting when of your sobriety nowadays they are very you know uh, glamorized the you know adver- advertisement of the alcohol sometimes as well and uh, when young people see that advertisement they see that you know if you need to socialize you have to have alcohol or something like that yeah. so i think these ads are also contributing into this fact And it's not just the ads, it's children's TV programs, it's adult TV, mm. TV programs, it's in magazines, it's in football. reality TV programs. It, yeah, football, it's everywhere. It's everywhere the football, it's yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's an association with alcohol and trying to get away from that. Like, 
children's birthday parties, funerals. Mm. It is everywhere. We celebrate, we commiserate. Um, and so it does seem overwhelming to navigate life without alcohol to start off with. But mm. that's what I do as a coach. We, I give tips and tools. I give support. Um, and I've been there and done it. I, I lead with integrity. I love my sobriety. I mm. love what it's led to. And so I, it's really exciting for me to help other people navigate life um, it feels over- overwhelming to start off with, but it's really actually quite an exciting journey. Amazing. Now, in addition, uh, we mentioned to sobriety, you also focus on fitness and nutrition goals. Um, how how does adopting that holistic approach to well-being, which you which you include, where you include physical health and mindset, how did that, how does that complement the journey to a sober and healthier lifestyle for your clients? I'm I'm, I'm sure because. If you you're taking away uh, uh, something that has been maybe a crucial, maybe not so crucial, but definitely a consistent part of people's lives, so I'm sure mm-hmm. there's something that you have to balance that with, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And um, so I actually came from a health and fitness background and a nutrition background, and we're taught that to promote a healthy lifestyle, it's all about movement, um, rest, nutrition. But actually, for me, what I realized as I started to take breaks from alcohol was that sobriety is kind of that keystone habit that allows all the others to fall into place. With sobriety, you mm-hmm. have the clarity to start having a look at your movement and your nutrition. I very much come from a holistic um, place, as you said. I look at the global kind of view. And sobriety is not actually just about removing what's in your glass and changing what's in your glass. It's actually about building up different coping mechanisms with life, working around stress in a different way, setting boundaries. Um, Exercise is a huge part of that. Um, It's a huge part of, uh, you know, working through mental health and emotional health, connection in exercise as well, things like yoga. That's a massive part of my sobriety. It Mm -hmm. helps me work through my emotions. Um, And nutrition is also key because it helps me feel good. We are what we eat. Mm-hmm. And that's what mm-hmm. led to my sobriety. I would be really um, like cautious with what I was eating, yet I was still happy to poison myself every night with a couple of glasses of wine because I see it on TV and it looks glamorous. <laughs> but actually, it yeah. really isn't. Yeah. So, Lisa, nutrition is uh, often, you know, uh, intervened with sobriety and well-being. How do you approach helping your clients uh, make healthier nutritional choices as they work towards a life without alcohol? And what impact does this have on their overall well-being? And also, if I may add, um, we were spoke, speaking about this in the first half of the program, going through the cost of living crisis. I mean, how do you balance that? Yeah, it's uh, at the moment with cost of living, it is just crazy. Um, alcohol actually, <laughs> the amount of money that I've saved by <laughs> taking alcohol out of my diet is ridiculous. Um, I said on average I probably spent eight pounds a day on alcohol, yeah. which when you work that out is two thousand nine hundred and twenty pounds a mm, year. Wow. So. When we say, well, we don't have the money to invest in decent nutrition, actually, if you look at what you're spending at alcohol, that's probably not true. It's just where your priorities lie. Um, With women, nutrition, again, I work very much around mindset and I work around functional fitness, about growing older well so that we can continue to do the things that we love, that that we enjoy, that, that light us up. So, yeah, nutrition is key to sobriety it's key to how we feel about ourselves um success breeds motivation 
So, yeah, looking at that, I definitely, I come from a whole food um, kind of school, a school of thought. So I would always recommend a whole food uh, diet. I I have three children myself, so, and I, I pre- practice what I preach. I cook all my meals from fresh um, and you can tell the difference hmm. as i said food is medicine so it, it really is key to how you feel about yourself all right there's a there's a post that you have on instagram i really like that i think uh, <clears throat> if people ask these are six questions to ask yourself do I ever put alcohol before yeah. the people i love have i struggled to give up in the past would life be would my life be better without alcohol how i felt guilt shame or remorse by my be, by my drunken behavior number five do all of my hobbies revolve around alcohol and also lastly are my loved ones concerned about my drinking? And I think that's something that a lot of people probably can resonate with at some point in their life to not being, you know, guilt-shamed into into making that decision, but also coming to that realization yourself that, look, hmm, maybe I, I did three of these six things. Yeah, absolutely. That, that little audit is like just this little self-check and hmm. gut-check of actually do I need to change my drinking habits the idea that my drinking wasn't destructive enough kept me stuck in that cycle. I didn't drink any more than anyone around me. I didn't drink in the mornings. I didn't drink during the day. I wasn't hiding it. However, removing it has had such a massive impact yeah. on every area of my life. So there, there's never been a time where I regret being sober, but there were many times when I regretted being drunk, even though we would laugh about it and we'd be like, that was a great night, wasn't it funny? But actually, it wasn't so funny in mm-hmm. hindsight. I much prefer being able to turn up as my authentic self, have conversations with people and connect on a proper level, have great improved relationships. As a mum, I'm so different. I parent my children in a much different way. I'm yeah. able to regulate my emotions in a completely different way. Like mm. It was all good, good fun, don't get me wrong. I loved my drinking days, but I love my sobriety more. Um, and that little audit is a, a great place to start. Wonderful. Thank you very much for joining us today, Alan Woods. We wish you all the best for the future. Thank you very much for joining us today once Bye. again. And uh, peace be upon you. Thank you. And you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. When we were talking, when you know, Alan was talking mm-hmm. about the cost, actually, the what you what you save, yeah. What what we save by not drinking, or what we spend by mm-hmm. drinking, just to give you <laughs> to give you an idea, mm-hmm. the Office for Budget Responsibility, the OBR, estimates that alcohol duties alone mm-hmm. will raise to thirteen point one billion pounds in the next uh, fiscal year, which is twenty twenty three and twenty twenty four, which is government yeah. revenue. Wow. Now the next question, I think, naturally that arises: Where does that money go? Thirteen point one billion. billion. Oh, because if you were to use that in a proper way, it costs the NHS an estimated three point five billion per year. Mm-hmm. And it costs an estimated twenty-one billion per year to society. So just the NHS, thirteen point five. That leaves like what eight eight billion. And then you have uh, then you have VAT on cigarettes and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, all and that stuff. Yeah, 50% I mean, they moved cigarettes. on through the cigarettes, which yeah. is yeah, I mean, applaudable. Yeah. But I think I was I was uh, reading an article a few days ago that um, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak he's trying to ban the cigarettes now. So yeah, I mean he, they're they're raising they're the raising age every single year. Yeah. But, but but when I was reading the article, I was really thinking that 
you know, uh, what is more, you know, serious or worse, alcohol that's or cigarettes? Question. That's a good so question. So you should be banning alcohol. Uh, I think that, that's something that <laughs> will always be debated and I think people will, will probably not be able to come. It's mm. both equally, equally. Um, but mm. again, from, 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 from a religious point of view, uh, not to, uh, you know, talk uh positively about about tobacco use and whatnot but mm-hmm. i think in the holy quran it is mentioned clearly about alcohol mm-hmm. and the the effects that it causes not just from from your on your physical body but also mm-hmm. on your mental state absolutely right um that you don't know in in one of the verses of the holy quran it says that do not go near Mm-hmm. prayer when you are intoxicated mm-hmm. meaning that you don't know what you're saying it's okay. all about the worship it's all about the praise of god almighty mm-hmm. but as long as we're not in our senses we don't know what we're saying what is the point of that mm-hmm. right i think uh, the holy quran what, uh, when the holy quran talks about the alcohol it, it tells that the harm is much more greater yeah, than it its outweighs, benefits yeah. so i think the alisa he was she was uh, exactly pointing out this uh, point that uh, she did enjoy her alcohol day but she is now more enjoying her sobriety yeah, days. It, I think uh, this always, is yeah. yeah. This is the one of the main point. And uh, she also talks about the peer pressure. Um, remember, there was a huge con- uh, you know controversy on when the um, Qatar fo- football World Cup was <laughs> happening. So I was think a that's <laughs> a great example. Yeah. Uh, that was such a powerful um, experience that some people had. And if mm. you looked at the social media posts, if you look at mainstream media. Something that I didn't know, I'm not sure who told me actually. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was, I don't know, maybe it was a fellow presenter or not. Mm-hmm. But did you know that alcohol is banned in football stadiums in France as well? Oh, okay. I well, didn't know that. I don't know that as well. And so I haven't fact checked that yet, uh-huh. so don't quote me on that. But okay. this, the, the person who told me was uh-huh. quite confident about this. Mm-hmm. Again, um, maybe I should fact check it. Mm-hmm. Maybe production can do that, or mm-hmm. if so if they can do that for me in, in, in the next couple of minutes. Mm-hmm. But the, the hypocrisy of things. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, to to have this outcry. I mean, I know a lot of people were like, okay, it's not that bad. It's not that mm-hmm. you know detrimental to have that. But overall speaking, people mm-hmm. were. Um, expressing their views mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that how can you do that and this and that and and again all of that led to what to Islam mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. all that led to Islam oh, look at that religion <laughs> look at this but again look yeah. this is it's something that we're finding out now Absolutely. was said for more than 14 centuries ago mm-hmm. by a man who lived in the middle of the desert who did not know how to read or write but it was divine inspiration it was divine guidance divine revelation that again told him that these are the things that you need to be careful of. And then when you look at the history of Islam, what happened if throughout uh, that time when you replaced one mm-hmm. intoxication with another, mm. when you replaced a physical intoxication with a spiritual intoxication, Beautiful. Mm. that you had people who who were close to you know barbaric like animals, yeah, yeah. animal yeah. instincts yeah. and yeah. Uh, barbaric lifestyles and whatnot but um then you turned into god-fearing people mm-hmm. then you mm-hmm. ta- turned into uh people who had a living relationship a living connection with god and that intoxication that they experienced mm-hmm. with the love of god with the the you know the the, the closest and, and and the relationship that they had with god almighty mm-hmm. they completely fought, forgot about that so mm-hmm. maybe that's something that people can look into as well if you have difficulties mm-hmm. 
in quitting, if you have difficulties uh, in, 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 in your sobriety or how to approach that sobriety. Maybe that's something that you can look into. Absolutely. And uh, I think production did send us, uh, I was right, yeah, thank you very much to uh, Sister Zora out there. French law prohibits the sale or distribution of alcohol in stadiums, physical education rooms, gymnasium, and under other sports establishments. Now, the 1991 Evan Law prohibits the sale, distribution, and introduction of alcohol beverages in sports and physical activity establishment. Thank you very much, Zakala, for that. So, sobriety from alcohol, you know, can lead to a better life in numerous ways as it has a positive impact on physical, mental, emotional and social well-being. Now, it is a uh, well-known fact that the physical effects of alcohol can be both immediate and long-term, ranging from uh, short-lived intoxication to chronic health problems. Intoxication or being drunk can lead to various downsides. Now, alcohol impairs cognitive function, leading to poor decision-making and risky behavior. Your motor skills and coordination are also affected by this, leading to risk of accidental injuries. Now, alcohol can irritate the stomach lining leading to nausea and vomiting it is also um, you know it, it is also a, a deuteric reduces the fluid in, in the body causes increased uh, urination and uh, dehydration which can result in thirst and dry mouth it can irritate the um, uh, you know di- digestion and um, gastro intestinal uh, system leading to acid reflux um, gastro Arthritis and other uh, digestive problems. So these are the physical harms of just it. to name just a few. Just to name a few, absolutely. But as uh, I think uh, Alan mentioned, that mm-hmm. it can ensure so many uh, physical benefits. As apart from the physical benefits, you also have the mental benefits that you that you will receive. That you see things a lot clearer. That you are able to focus mm-hmm. and whatnot. So again, the, the, the research is out there. You can go into the details, and I think we will be sitting here until next uh, week if we if we do that. But we don't have time for that, unfortunately. What we do have time for is our next guest. Joining us on the line is the founder of Soberish, which is a website and Facebook group dedicated to helping people quit drinking and stay sober long term while focusing on improving mental and physical health, something that we just discussed and uh, briefly mentioned. Uh, And uh, Alicia Gilbert, she herself quit drinking in December of 2016. Alicia, good afternoon. Peace upon you and welcome to the Draft Time Show. Hi, thank you for having me. Great to have you on. Thank you so much for for joining us today, first of all. Um, Could you share... Look, one thing is, and we can present these facts, and we can present these stats, and we can, you know, put that fear of uh, alcohol into people's minds. But I think that is not the point. That is not what we're trying to do. I think reason, logic, um, has 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 a lot more impact. But what has probably the most impact is personal stories. If I talk about, I don't know, like being a Muslim, but I don't preach. Uh, I only preach what 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 it means to be a Muslim, but I don't practice it it doesn't really have that much of an impact. So if I would like to ask you, if, if that's okay with you, if you could share your personal journey of quitting drinking. As I mentioned, it's been uh, seven years, um, 2016, yeah. and how how that led you or how that inspired you to create uh, Soberish. What, what were 
you know, the pivotal moments that led you to start this platform? Yeah, sure. So um, 2016, I was actually in my second year of living in Abu Dhabi. And I felt like my relationship with alcohol and drinking had gotten so bad at that point that I was truly at a crossroads. Um, when I moved over there in 2014, I was already experiencing issues with drinking. And I think I thought, you know, when I moved over there, I, I thought I was moving to a place where alcohol would not be as central to mm. my life as it was when I lived in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, but I realized when I moved over there that actually alcohol was still very ingrained in the social culture there. Mm. And I was surrounded by it a lot. It was a big party and drinking culture. Women drank free a lot. Um, there was all, often these one price events you could go to and you could have as much as you want. And I ended up just getting worse. Mm. And I, I realized, you know, I, I was at a turning point, like something was going to have to change. So at the start of 2016, that's when I started a few times um, to quit. Um, and I would go, you know, I would make it like a couple months here, a couple months there, but I would always slip back, right? Cause it was just, it was hard over there to not drink cause everybody was drinking and they were drinking mm-hmm. so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think me kind of realizing it was like, I, okay, so I have to do this. If I don't do this, I'm going to ruin my life Mm -hmm. and I'm not going to be able to do the things that I want to do. My husband and I wanted to have a baby. I'm like, I I can't be a mother Mm -hmm. like this. And so that's kind of what inspired me to start Soberish because I wanted to create a platform that could be like an accountability tool for myself. Initially, that's what it was. It was just a place for me to kind of tell my like story and experience experience, what I was going through, what was hard about it. That's why I called it soberish because I had done nothing but failed to get sober. So I mm-hmm. was like, I don't even know if I can do this. <laughs> and, you know, over there, there wasn't, nobody talked about drinking there as a problem, right? It, you know, it was this very underground thing that happened everywhere, but you really weren't encouraged mm-hmm. or allowed yeah. to talk about out loud. So mm-hmm. it was like, I felt alone. So I created it so I could connect with other people, and that was the the initial impetus uh, for starting the website. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So, Alisa, Sobrish focus, uh, you know, uh, not only on sobriety but also on improving mental and physical health. How do you believe these aspects are interconnected, and what strategies or advice do you offer to help individuals maintain their sobriety while enhancing their overall? well-being yeah sure i mean they're they're fundamentally interconnected and it it becomes very it's very chicken and egg right there are a lot of people who start abusing alcohol because they're trying to self-medicate mental health issues or even their everyday stress but the problem is is that alcohol changes your neural circuitry in such a way that actually makes you more stressed out when Mm -hmm. you're not drinking and makes depression symptoms and anxiety symptoms even worse and so it becomes this horrible self-reinforcing cycle and so Mm -hmm. when you quit drinking you know often those anxiety symptoms will spike the depression symptoms will spike your stress Mm -hmm. levels will often feel really high chances are your physical health is not in the best shape because Mm -hmm. 
a lot of people who abuse alcohol, they're not typically like super physically active. And there's just Mm -hmm. a lot that you have to do to kind of start over and heal your entire body. It's not just about, okay, well, I'm going to quit alcohol. And then you also have to treat what were some of the underlying causes that made you drink to escape in the first place. And so that's why it's so important to get treatment for depression and anxiety if you're experiencing that. That's why it's important to move your body and to eat foods that make you feel good and not lousy. And you have to really take like a whole person approach mm-hmm. to long-term sobriety in order for it to, to stick. Hmm. Which leads me to the next question because as is the case with diets, with gyms, with quitting to smoke, with, you know, in this case, alcohol, um, the, the, the challenge is not quitting. The challenge is quitting for long term. Yeah. And that's, that's, and that's, I did both. Yeah. yeah. I smoked as well. <laughs> yeah. I had to quit both things. Yeah. yeah. So what, what, in your opinion, Alicia, from your experience, what are some of the common obstacles that you've seen individuals face in that journey to sobriety? And in your, um, you know, support, how, 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 how do you support them to overcome these challenges? Yeah. So I think one of the biggest ones is what happens to people's mood and mental health in the immediate days and weeks Hmm. after they quit drinking, especially if they've been drinking heavily for a very long time. There are people who are experiencing an agonizing level of agitation anxiety and depression there are people who one two three months into it they just they're bored they're lonely they're frustrated they don't see how things will ever feel good again Mm -hmm. and we have a medical explanation for why it's going on but so many people don't they don't realize what alcohol did to their brain and they don't understand you know, and I didn't know this either until mm-hmm. I had quit. Like I didn't realize how much of that was from the alcohol. And so helping people to realize like these things that you're experiencing are normal. There's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with you. This is what happens when you drink for a really long time and then you take that alcohol away. This is part of the healing process. Mm-hmm. It's going to get worse before it gets better, but it will get better. And sometimes just giving people that education and that knowledge and giving them a place where they can come and just say like, Hey, I've, I've been quitting. I quit two months ago and I don't feel good. I'm not Mm -hmm. happy. Mm -hmm. And being able to connect with people who are like, I know what you mean. I felt that way too, but now I'm six months into it and things feel very different. And here's what I did to kind of move past it. Just giving people a place to like talk about it. Mm -hmm. Has, has is really helpful because there are a lot of people who you hit that, those early days with the depression and the agitation and say, I can't bear this, and they just go back to drinking. Yeah. So that's a big one. And then also just, you know, peer pressure. Hmm. There are a lot of people whose entire social lives revolved around drinking. Yeah. Their yeah. friends are drinking buddies. And when you take alcohol out of the equation, there's nothing left. There's nothing left to that relationship. Mm-hmm. They don't have any connections with people anymore. They feel isolated and they feel alone. So we try to give them a space where they don't have to feel as isolated and alone. So how do you do that? For example, if I if if there's someone listening out here, 
how do they reach out to you or in a, in a different country or they don't have a support network they don't have family around you i mean in your case you move from from one continent to the other um yeah. there are people i mean loneliness that's also maybe one of the reasons why they 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 you know go in, into into drinking even heavier um how, how important is is that physical aspect that you know you need to have someone to talk to face to face um so i you know as human beings like we are innately social creatures we do need that face to face interaction but like if you can't get it like being able to form connections hmm. digitally has its benefits I and mean, that's hmm. what i did i hmm. connected with other sober people all across the world via twitter um and it helped me a lot so you know we have a, a private facebook group and there are people from all over the world in that group um and they you know we reach out you know we connect with one another we talk with one another and i don't think that that is the only thing people should be doing but i think it can be one you know tool in your toolbox a, a community that you can go to and rely on mm-hmm. but um so i would say just in terms of your question of like where can people connect um our private facebook is a is a great resource and there are people from all over the world so you know you know time zone difference you could post there and like if you're in the uk there are other people in the uk that are online at the same time yeah. so um we've been able to connect in that way and it's been really powerful wonderful Alicia, thank you very much for joining us today. We wish you um, on your personal journey as well as for Soberish all the best. Um, great work that you're doing out there. If you want to find out more about Soberish um, and the work that Alicia and her team does, you can find her on Facebook. Am I correct on that? Yes. Wonderful. Yeah, you can find me on Facebook. Um, you can also visit my website, soberish.co, and you'll see links there to the private Facebook. We have a public page, and then you can access our private Facebook from there as well and request to join. Wonderful. Alicia, peace be upon you. Thank you so much for joining us once again. Thank you so much. Thank Bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. So that was Alicia Gilbert, who's the founder of Soberish. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I think this is the most powerful thing that if you have personal experience, if you've gone through that, that probably has has the biggest impact. When we talk mm-hmm. about experiencing God, when we talk about spirituality, when we talk about uh, you know here at the Voice of Song, we talk about the Living God all the time mm-hmm. and the the power of prayer. We can talk about this all day long, but if there is no personal experience that we can share with people, mm-hmm. that it's not just all talk. And I think this is something that His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masood, the current Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, based on the, the the writings and based on the teachings of, first of all, the Holy Quran, then the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. But then in this day and age, the promised Messiah, on whom be peace, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, has has said in in his recent addresses and it says this all the time that you can talk all day long but mm-hmm. if there's no there's no, there's no practical element mm-hmm. to it if there's mm-hmm. nothing that people can see uh, can experience mm-hmm. then what good is that Absolutely. and in this example again so Alicia you have but um, and, and as well as Ellen 
And there are thousands, if not millions, of these stories out there. Mm. Our job at this point of time uh, with this show was just to raise that awareness that you can go without. There's, there's n- it will be a better life. Mm-hmm. But mm. of course you will have to struggle. I mean, there's Absolutely. no reward. Mm. If there is no struggle, there is no there is reward. No reward. I think you mentioned a very beautiful point that uh, you you have to have uh, you know have to have practical um, example and also you you cannot just talk and talk you yeah. have to have something some sort of uh, you know practical uh, thing so uh, if we look towards islam now islam really uh, gives you a timetable of whole day yeah. so for example there is a five daily prayers and uh, i think the people who are um, who are are in these kind of stuff like drugs and alcohol mm. and they have sort of weak willpower and i think in my personal opinion what i observe by observing prayers and mm. five daily prayers it uh, gives you it disciplines you and it gives you certain kind of willpower for example fajr at times it happen at 4:30 in the morning and uh, before that you have a uh, another prayer which is a voluntary prayer called mm. um, tahajjud prayer mm. so if you wake up for that you have to wake up for 3 o'clock so all of these things it somehow i think contribute into your willpower and also disciplines you discipline uh, discipline you and i think uh, it is very important that if you are disciplined in life then um, there are very less likely chances to mm. get involved into these things so this is why i think islam's come handy Now the UK in particular is notorious or maybe you could say was notorious for mm-hmm. actually let's let's stick to is notorious okay. for its drinking culture with pubs and bars being central to social and social hubs but as we you, you have probably noticed mm-hmm. I definitely noticed that these pubs and these bars are slowly slowly diminishing, diminishing yeah. they yeah. are closing down for whatever mm-hmm. reasons but i think what uh ellen also mentioned at the beginning that this drinking culture you won't see that much in that the next generation yes, which is a good sign, good sign because there's a lot more awareness out there there's mm-hmm. a lot more <clears throat> information and education out there about mm-hmm. the detrimental effects of alcohol as the fifth caliph of the amdium security his holiness has admitted masood ahmed may allah strengthen his hand once said in his friday sermon in 2010 Alcohol and gambling are commonplace. These are available everywhere, even in places where there is a restriction on them. Mm. Not only are they commonplace in these countries, but people are also tempted and lured to them. Every service station, every store promotes gambling through fruit machines. Mm. And pubs adults are permitted to get you know to to acquire drinks in the presence of minors. A practice that can expose young individuals to alcohol related to harm and normalize excessive drinking behaviors although pubs offer a co- communal space for people to socialize it's important to recognize that under the guise of a light-hearted fun people are actually regularly getting together to drink mm-hmm. an excessive and irresponsible alcohol consumption there's no doubt about that can lead to serious consequences both not just for the individual but as we mentioned about uh, to, to the society as a whole mm-hmm. the figures and the the pressure on the nhs is rising as we speak no doubt about that with the long waiting periods and this delayed and that delayed mm-hmm. doctor junior doctor strikes and what not add on that the pressure and the the stats and the figures that that are attached to alcohol related uh, issues uh. it's not just the individual having a physical impact on their body if they're driving they're uh. endangering other people mm. if they get into an accident they might even kill other people if they don't they might get into a situation where they will need a lifelong treatment mm. based on their actions so it has a knock on effect like probably yeah. no other 
and it's just something that you have to have to seriously think about mm-hmm. it's a culture that it is existent in this country not just in this country again from alicia what she said mm-hmm. even in abu dhabi right <laughs> which is supposed to be a muslim country <laughs> yeah. uh but again it, it's an issue that 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 you face mm-hmm. everywhere i think it's uh, you important nsh and the burden on nsh i have uh, have a small stat on it so in uk alcohol related hospital admissions have been a significant concern so in england alone there were over a million alcohol related hospital admission in the uh, year 2019 and 2022 that's crazy and alcohol related deaths have been uh, substantial on, on rise and public health um, uh, service issues that in the uk there were over 7000 alcohol specific deaths in 2019 alone yeah. so i think um, it does not uh, you know affect your affect you individually but as a society as yeah. a whole alcohol it really affects you whether we talk about you know um pressure on health system or you know accidents lots mm. of accidents occur because because of you know alcohol and um, you know whether we talk about mental health or these kind of issue alcohol is like um, very root cause of this i think there's a short clip of uh, his holiness hazrat khalifa uh, hazrat uh, mirza tahir ahmed the fourth caliph of the ahmadiyya muslim community we're going to play that and the question in that that was asked to his holiness is that very simple probably the most common question that is asked to muslims around the world why don't you drink Um, my second question is why aren't we allowed to drink any ha- alcohol alcohol when you see already you have uh, seen so many campaigns against drunken driving haven't you yes and you must have been aware also of uh, alcohol men being mentioned frequently in connection with the increase in crime so this is something which is bad because under alcoholic influence we either lose control of, over our actions or we are enfeebled in our mental capabilities to judge things in the right perspective so we make we're more likely to make errors of judgment like it is de- demonstrated during our driving of cars under alcoholic influences why do accidents take place because our uh, judgment is impaired under alcoholic influence so when you can't drive a car how can you be safe in dealing with other human affairs that is why many an alcoholic person has been reported to smash the head of his own child against the stone wall becoming mad at something you know he couldn't control his rage similarly most of the cruelties committed against wives women here Uh, by their husbands are reported to be under the influence of wine or alcohol whatever you call it so because it is it has more bad than good about it so the holy quran says that is why it has been forbidden so this was his holiness uh, the amdi muslim the fourth caliph of amdi muslim community uh, hazrat mirza tahir ahmed explaining why islam uh, has uh, forbid 
or abandon uh, the alcohol and he was explaining that the the root cause or the causes the root cause of many problem in the society is because um we have you know uh, alcohol problem and uh, you know accidents happens and burden on healthcare system and uh, individually and as a society uh, many problems uh, is because of the alcohol so although pubs offer communal spaces for people to socialize um it is very you know uh, important um to recognize that under the gaze of light-hearted fun people are regularly getting uh, together to drink but anyway i think md muslim community has uh, uh, you know um, has provided its youth uh, yeah. alternatives and i think it's very important the md muslim community offers opportunities for um alcohol-free fun throughout the year including picnics picnics sports events fostering a sense of community and social engagement without the need for alcohol maybe talk to a muslim who's never drunk in his life yeah. i mean we we seem to be all right mm-hmm. most of them yeah. right uh, <laughs> the majority of them they seem to be all right didn't need it uh but again look uh, we're we're not here to to judge or 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 uh tell you that uh, you know you're hellbound or not for us as muslims it's clear one of the reasons i think um, his holiness has explained this in in different q and a's as well um why we don't drink it's it's an injunction of god almighty mm-hmm. and i think this is the same uh, with the question of why don't you eat pork yeah it's it's a commandment of god mm-hmm. i think that's the first and foremost thing it's probably the most powerful most important aspect of Uh, the explanation or the answer again in other q and a's his holiness has elaborated on that in a lot more detail but this was a question by a child mm. um so which is why he used this very simple and very beautiful language and isn't god the one who knows us the best right absolutely yeah. just because the things have been created just because things do exist doesn't mean that we use them in the wrong way right mm-hmm. it all depends on the users now alcohol uh, if you take alcohol out of the equation at all completely like out of mm-hmm. the world mm-hmm. um it wouldn't work mm-hmm. medicine is ba- a lot of medicine is based on alcohol a lot of other treatment methods are based on alcohol but it is the quantity it's the way they are used but also god almighty is the maker he's the one who has the blueprint he knows us best mm-hmm. if he's saying if the almighty is saying that look these things they do have benefits but not that much mm-hmm, the the disadvantages are far more so best thing is you stay away from it i would like to quote here the the promised messiah sallallahu alaihi wasallam he he states that uh, god almighty first states oh you who believe fear god this means that in the first instance one should uh, profess believe and then after this one should abandon sinful practices and keep in the company of the truthful righteous righteousful the company one keeps has a deep underlying effect on that individual's personality the promised messiah islam says for example if one regularly visits places where alcohol is consumed no matter how much they abstain from it mm. eventually they will end up drinking alcohol I think it's a very important point that uh, you have to have uh, a good, um, you know, good company. As the Holy Quran says, "Kunu masa dikin be with the righteous one," and that will really affect you. This is one of the, you know, I think, uh, point. Um, if you hang out with those people who, who consume alcohol on daily basis, then you will end up consuming alcohol. 
Definitely. All right. Now that brings us to the end of today's program. We would like to say thank you to our listeners out there. Jazakallah. May Allah bless you for joining us and for sticking around, for staying with us. I uh, would like to say thank you to Nadia Shamas, Prabhishama and Zora Mabashir for producing and for researching today's program. And uh, the Draft Time Show will be back tomorrow, uh, same time at 4 o'clock, but don't forget. Before that, the, the Breakfast Show team will be able to uh, welcome you to their program at 7 a.m. in the morning. And uh, yeah, these are all the things that we could fit into these two hours. Uh, you can listen back to all of the programs and the podcasts on SoundCloud, as well as on our social media channel. So do make sure that you uh, drop us a follow from all of us here. Thank you very much for listening. Assalamu alaikum.